So this um, new church home, back in 2018, we started looking for a place times bigger, is what we asked God, than our older building because we had run out of space. And this is exactly three times bigger, like to the square foot. And we asked him for it to be downtown. And this is even closer to downtown than the other place. And, and so what is all of this? This is a space to worship, which is our first job. This is a place where we can mark milestones like weddings and funerals. Our, our other building wasn't big enough to have a lot of the funerals that, that um, our church will need a lot. We've had three in 12 years. Um, but weddings, a place where we can bring our church offices into our church building, a place where we can invite kids of all to learn about Jesus. Uh, for the first time in the history of our church, we have room for kids of all ages to be taught the scriptures um, in children's classes and all. A place that can serve as a ministry launch pad for training leaders and equipping church planners that will multiply ministry and mercy and justice citywide and regionwide. And just as importantly, this is a building, this is a place for the city, for serving the poor and welcoming neighbors into artist events. Last night, Lindy and Arts Incarnate, they hosted this, um, this flamenco dance and wine occasion, a place stakeholders of the city who are laboring together for the flourishing of the city. We've designed this building so that we can generously open our doors to um, as an affordable public utility. We spent extra money on this kind of high-tech locking mechanism that we can open up just specific spaces of the building so that it doesn't wear us out to day and night be sharing parts of the building with people in the city. And now for this, our first Sunday, as I've prayed and asked the Lord, what should we kind of draw our attention to in Scripture together in our very first church on a Sunday to worship Him here in this building? I thought that the best thing we can do is to remember again the gospel together. Turn to the back of your worship guide. Notice there's a very an inside, I think, of the back page maybe. Is there a list of the vision and the values? Is it there, Russell? Or is it? Okay, look at the very top of that. Notice our vision. The Church of the Incarnation seeks the glory of God and the good of the city through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then under that are nine core values. That This is who we've always been. These aren't aspirational. These are values that drove the very first group that got together and began to pray for this church. This is who we've always been and will continue to be. And I hope that at some point, maybe today or in the next couple of days, this is a good moment for everybody. Read over those. Turn them maybe into your own prayer this week that God would continue to bless our church in these kinds of ways and that you would find your place within this. But I want you to notice that very first value, the very center of our life as a church, the gospel. Let, let's read that first value out loud all together. We gather around the magnetic center of Jesus Christ. Through his life resurrection, God's kingdom has arrived on earth to renew all things, our relationship with God, ourselves, others, and the world. Now, that's the gospel. If anybody ever asks you, what's the gospel? It's that. 
You could call this the core value of our church. Think of it as the, the heart of our church, the thing that beats and pushes blood and oxygen all through everything we do. And today, let's one more time remember and tell together this old, old story once again. Now, if you have your Bible, find Mark chapter 1. Mark chapters 14 through 15 is probably my favorite scripture in the Bible for wrapping our minds around what the gospel is and who Jesus is. And and it's a great place for us to see this. So Mark chapter 1, notice verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the gospel. When Jesus steps onto the stage, the first thing he does is tell the news that's good. Gospel means good news. The news that's good. He makes this announcement. What's the news that's so good? It's that now that Jesus is here, the kingdom... That's my favorite definition of the gospel. In Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived on earth. That's the news that's so good. Now, what I'm going to do the rest of this morning is show you why and how that is really good news. Now, look at what it says in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. What's the gospel? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. That's the gospel. That's the news that's so good. And then right after that, he tells everybody, you've got to respond to it. That's the announcement that Jesus' kingdom has arrived. Now repent and believe it. Respond to it. This was the central fact of Jesus' life. At his deepest core, when he thought, who am I and what am I doing? I am God in the flesh. The king has returned, like it said in our Isaiah passage, that he will be plainly seen once again in Israel. Here he is. He's here in his life. The kingdom of God has arrived on earth. And as a Christian church... This is the central fact of our life. This is the core of our identity because this was the core of Jesus' identity. Now, what exactly does that mean? Look, when you condense things into slogans, the kingdom has come, that's a slogan. When you condense stuff into a slogan, it's like taking a lot of complicated items that you're going to have on a trip and putting them in a suitcase. So that's the suitcase version of the gospel. In Jesus, the kingdom has arrived. But you've still got to get somewhere and unpack that. So what does it mean? Well, Jesus spends the whole rest of Mark's gospel unpacking this suitcase. And what we notice in Mark's gospel is he does it in a really fun way. In Mark's gospel, he, he teaches us, he shows us, he, he, he introduces us to what this means in four dimensions. This will be the four points of my sermon this morning. He does it in his miracles. He does, he does it in his death. And he does it in his resurrection. It's a four-dimensional picture of what the gospel is. It's four mediums that Jesus uses to paint a picture of the gospel. The news that's good, that, that in him the kingdom has arrived. Now, one of my favorite places where it happens is in chapter 4 and verse chapter 5. So flip over to Mark chapter 4. Here we have Jesus teaching in chapter 4, verses 1 to 34. He has four parables where he explains the fundamentals of the kingdom. And then starting in verse 35 of Mark 4, he has four. I said miracles or parables. What did I say? 
Four, okay, so at the beginning of chapter 4, four parables where he explains the fundamentals. Then starting in verse 35, four miracles where he demonstrates what the kingdom is. Let's start with the miracles. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, all the way through the end of chapter 5, we see Jesus do four incredibly powerful things, miracles. And what he's doing is he's showing us what the kingdom is. These moments where God's power breaks into the old, dead, tired kingdom of the world and, and shows us God's kingdom. So in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus calms the sea. He's demonstrating that the kingdom of God arriving on earth brings peace to nature. In God's kingdom, nature itself is healed and renewed by the power of the creator. He delivers nature from its war against humanity. Verse 39, he wakes up, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Shalom, peace, be still. Stop attacking humans. Stop, stop destroying humans. And you see, it's a picture of the kingdom. Now that God's kingdom has come into this tired world, what we see is that in bringing God's kingdom, he is stopping the war between nature and humans. And humans are no longer going to destroy nature. And nature's no longer going to destroy humans. He's bringing shalom to that relationship. Humans and nature are no longer alienated from one another. That's, that's a picture of what life is like in God's kingdom. Now, isn't that incredibly good news? Don't you long for the day when humans stop destroying nature and nature stops destroying humans? Don't you long for the day when a farmer will put his seed, won't rain at the wrong time and it will actually rain at the right time? Don't you long for the day when we can figure out how to power our lives without erasing mountaintops? Like this is, the king, this is a picture of what the kingdom is. In God's kingdom, humans and nature are, are united once again in a relationship of, of flourishing. Now, that's part of the good news. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived, and that means humans and nature will be reconciled to each other. Look at the second miracle. The second miracle is in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, what's happening here? When Jesus cast out a demon from a man, what we see is that the kingdom of earth solves our deepest spiritual problems because we're more than physical beings. We're also spiritual beings. And in Jesus' kingdom, he delivers us from bondage to forces, to spiritual forces, to evil that's way outside of our control. Here's this man abusing himself. Notice Mark chapter 5, verse 2. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one... And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he burst. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when Jesus asked the man, what is your name? He replies in verse 9, my name is Legion, for we are many. He has lost all self-identity. This is, this is just heartbreaking. He identifies himself with his demons. He's alienated from him, his own self. 
So this is the way it is in our world. This is world, but not when the king returns and not in his kingdom. In his kingdom, God sets humans free from the forces that are chaining them and binding them and turning them against their very selves. And and so notice what happens in verse 15. When the people of the city came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. Do you see what God did? He delivered this man. Now, don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Like that, do you see why in Jesus the kingdom of God has arrived is the news that's so good? Not only are we reconciled with nature and nature sets us free from this evil forces that ravage and destroy and turn people, turn our children that we give a beautiful name into people who give themselves another name that is all ravage and all destruction. In the kingdom, that's not going to be the way it is. The news that's so good is that in the kingdom of God, people are reunited with God and restored to themselves. Now look at the next miracle, chapter 5, verse 21. Here we see that the kingdom of God arriving on earth means diseases are healed. Cancer is an imposter. Diseases are terrible. I wish we could keep walking through miracles and unpack all of their glorious details and how God is giving us this full four-dimensional view of what it means for his kingdom to be demonstrated on earth, God's powerful kingdom, healing people who are ravaged by disease. And then in chapter 5, verse 35, as if that's not glorious enough, reconciled to nature, reconciled to God, reconciled to ourselves, healed of diseases. In chapter 5, verse 35, we see that the kingdom arriving on earth means death is conquered, our greatest enemy. Death will be no more in the kingdom of God Death is put to death. In Jesus, God enters human history in love and power to liberate and to heal and to renew the whole world. In Jesus, God is acting in love and power to restore all of creation and all of human life to again live under the benevolent reign of King Jesus. So the miracles of Jesus, think of them like tulips breaking through the snow in the spring. These miracles are these moments where the kingdom of God is broken through this old, tired, infested world. And you get a glimpse when you look at each one of these miracles, a glimpse of what life will be like when Christ is all in all and the glory of God covers the seas. These are little windows that we get a glimpse into the kingdom from which Satan and his demons have been cast out. Sickness and pain are no more. Death itself is gone forever. And the creation itself is restored to its original beauty and harmony. And there are no traces of sin's effects defiling or defacing all of God's creation. That's the news that's so good. That's why it's so good. That's the good news. So many of us have these habits of telling the good news as if it's actually bad news. But this that I've been telling, this is good. That's what's so good. It's so beautiful. How those who tell this story. So as we move forward into a new season of life as a church, this is the central fact of our life. We are a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of this amazing, glorious gospel that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived 
on earth. Now remember, I said Jesus gives a four-dimensional picture of his kingdom. That's just the first dimension. In his miracles, he shows us what it looks like. Let's look at the second dimension. In his teaching, he explains to us what it means. And so in these four parables, flipping back, that happen in the first half, chapter 4, Jesus gives us four different explanations of some fundamental truths about the kingdom that we need to know. First of all, Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of God is resistible. It's not irresistible. The kingdom of God does not come with irresistible power. He doesn't force it on us. This was very surprising to the people of Jesus' day. Because they were expecting a Messiah to come like a conquering hero, a warrior who would force it on people. Look at verse 3, Mark chapter 4 verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And then the picture that emerges is of a king in the form of a poor, humble farmer planting seeds. And some of those seeds fall on the footpath where the dirt is packed and hard and the seed doesn't take root. And some of the seed falls in rocky places among the thorns. In other words, you can reject this beautiful kingdom. People can hear this beautiful kingdom opened up. Jesus can offer this amazing, the entrance into this kingdom. And people can say, the kingdom of God makes its way into the world in weakness. That's the first teaching that we've got to know as we live in God's kingdom. And we try to live out of God's kingdom. Second The second thing that Jesus teaches that's so fundamental to the kingdom in these four parables is that the kingdom of God is not only resistible, the kingdom of God doesn't arrive all at once. It does not arrive all at once. We see this over in verses 30 through 34. Right now the kingdom is small, Jesus was saying, and it may seem insignificant. In Jesus the kingdom has arrived, but it's not yet here in its full third in these parables. He shows us that in the future, the kingdom of God will be impossible to ignore. It's resistible now. But there is coming a day when it will not be ignorable. You can ignore it now. But that's not how it's going to always be. It will be the most glorious of all the kingdoms. It will be irresistible. This comes up very strongly in these parables and other parables like in Matthew chapter 13 verses 24 through 30. In the future there will be a final judgment. Ultimately save his creation by judging his enemies that have ruined it. The fourth fundamental teaching of Jesus as he explains the kingdom in this in Mark chapter 4 and in other passages is this. Jesus The reason God is waiting to bring his kingdom in fullness is so that many people may enter it without coercion. He's waiting because he's not going to force it on people. And he wants everybody to be drawn and it's justice to be compelled by its goodness. 
This comes up in Mark 4. It comes up in other places like Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, where a banquet is being made ready. The table is set. It's laden with food and drink. And suddenly, right before the banquet starts, the host stops. The guest must wait a little while longer. He suspends the banquet. And the reason he delays the start of the banquet in Luke 14 is so that others can be brought in to share in the banquet table, especially the poor and the forgotten. (coughs) Now, (coughs) there's a lot more to the kingdom than these four things. But these are four of the main fundamental themes that Jesus taught when he taught in the kingdom. So let's back up and get the big picture. We are a Christian church. This is the central fact of our life. We are a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the news that is so good. In Jesus, the kingdom has arrived. That's his core identity. And so it's our core identity. And he opened these in the Gospels. One, through his teaching. Two, through his miracles. Third, through his death. In his death, so remember, in his teachings, he explains the kingdom. In his miracles, he demonstrates the kingdom. In his death, he secures the victory necessary for his kingdom to exist on earth. It's at the cross that God delivers the death blow to human sin and rebellion and accomplishes the salvation of the world. When we look at Jesus' crucifixion through the lens of his resurrection, we see that in his death we have God's self-giving love, his mercifulness and grace and justice and righteousness on full display. It's on the cross that Jesus acts to accomplish his purposes to save all. All of creation. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote enormous space to Jesus' crucifixion. And what they show us is that it's through his death on the cross that Jesus does three things in particular. One, first of all, and most importantly, he defeats the power of evil that is shackling his creation. He conquers evil and death and that dark shadowy force that's behind all of the darkness that's ruining our world. We talked about that. My sermon was on that several weeks ago. Number two, all the gospels show us that in his death, he was dying for us. He sacrifices himself for us. He's got this amazing little parable in, in, one of his, in one of the Gospels where he says to Israel, Look, people, a fire is coming, and I am going to gather you under my wings like a hen. And that fire is going to and kill me and destroy me, and you are going to be safe under me. I'm going to die for you. Third, Jesus' death is not only the defeat of of evil, not only the sacrifice of himself for us. Third, he represents us. He did all of this, this fight against darkness, this sacrifice for our sins as our representative. He's like David fighting Goliath as the representative of Israel. Jesus conquers death and sin on behalf of us. 
And we can share in that victory over sin and death when, when we hear this of the gospel and rising up in us is an answering love, an answering loyalty. We respond to this beautiful news that's so good by saying, man, I love you to Jesus. I will give you a higher loyalty than I give my own desires. I will be true to you. I will let you teach me what's true. I will respond. You have been so faithful to me when I've been faithless. I'm going to give you my faithfulness. And so that answering love, that answering faithfulness, that responding loyalty, that's what it means to convert. News that's good and to rise up and respond with love and trust and faith and repentance of all the ways you've been involved in the death works of this world and, and saying that you're sorry for that and opening your heart and life and love to Jesus. Okay, so what is the gospel? It's the news that's good. That in Jesus, God's kingdom, his good and gracious kingdom has arrived on earth to renew and heal all humans and all creation. And we see it demonstrated in his miracles and taught in his parables and secured in his crucifixion. And finally, the fourth dimension, it's inaugurated in his resurrection. After Jesus' death, the Roman name of Pilate, he gives permission to a Jewish man by the name of Joseph to take Jesus' body down from the cross to prepare it for burial and to lay it in a tomb. And then some women who've been following Jesus, they go to the tomb to finish preparing his body for internment. And they discover he's been risen from the dead. John chapter 11, if you have your Bible, turn there. John chapter 11 gives us this wonderful um, help to understand what is Jesus' resurrection about. In John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says to Martha... That her brother, who's dead, is going to rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's what the Jews at that time believed. That at the very end of all things, there will be a resurrection. And Jesus', Jesus response is this. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The resurrection of Jesus has implications beyond his own return to life. His resurrection is about you. It's about you knowing that one day you're going to die. How is that not going to just be the end of you? If you can draw into Christ, you get to experience what he experienced. You will not end at death. The resurrection of Jesus, he acts on behalf of all of us, not only in his crucifixion, but in his resurrection. He is the resurrection. In dying, he takes upon himself the judgment of the world. In rising, he takes upon himself the rising of the world, the renewal of whole, the whole creation. And that will include your physical body and your life. This is the greatest comfort. Whenever you're with a loved one and they are dying, you can say to them, I will see you again with my own eyes on this will be together again. This is not the end of it for you. You're just going to take a nap and you're going to wake up with your soul at rest in Christ. And one day we think the Shenandoah Valley is beautiful now, but we will be back here with eyes and bodies. Whoever believes in Jesus gets to share in that. That's the news that's so good. 
That's the news that's so beautiful that it should call out of us an answering love and an answering loyalty and allegiance. What I'm saying is that in his resurrection, Jesus opened the door to the new creation and then holds the door open and invites all of us. In Jesus, God's new day has dawned at last. That's the gospel. That's the news that's so good. Now go back with me to where we started. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John had arrested Jesus, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the news that's so good, saying, the time is finally here. The kingdom of God has finally come back. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. Have you said... I've gotten all wrapped up in the death ways of this world. I'm sorry for the way I deal death to my family and my attitude and my anger and my irresponsibility. I'm tired of the way that I've dealt death to my neighbors by my selfishness. Forgive me, Jesus. I've lived to a different rhythm than the rhythm of the kingdom. And I believe You have brought the kingdom. Help me in my unbelief. But I believe it. Answering love and loyalty. God will plant his kingdom in your life. And you will discover a brand new energy that you can draw down on to do the hard work of forgiving others. Of overcoming your flesh and sin and the world. This is the center of our church. This glorious good news. And this is what we get to live into and learn more about and express and demonstrate and teach from this building throughout our city and region. To the praise of God the Father. Amen.